TGIM, Timari. This is episode 312. But I'm perfectly imperfect. And, and I'm okay with that today. I don't have to be the straight A number one top of the class. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to screw things up. But just one day at a time, I know that I'm trying to connect with people and I know I'm just not going to drink just for today. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Holly. Holly took her last drink on January 4th, 2007, and she is from Montana. Before we get started with our interview, I wanted to let you know that we've made our first donation of this year, 2021. The organization we chose is Our Land in Thailand. Our Land is a nature conservation project which allows local flora and fauna to flourish within its ground. Our Land was founded as a tribute to everyone who loves nature and wants to spend some silent time in Mother Nature's embrace. Here, you connect with the spirits of the land and in ancient Thai ways, you also get to spend time with the elephants. A year ago, during the Recovery Elevator Asia Adventure Retreat, a group of people got to visit Our Land and spend some time with the elephants. Our donation to them comes from an effort to contribute to their mission, which is to respect nature and to create a new way of life. For us here at Recovery Elevator, nature and recovery have a strong bond, and we are thankful we get to support a project like Our Land. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. I want to let you all know that Holly is the second guest on the show since I became the host that I went to treatment with. Her and I went to Montecatini Treatment Center here in California. For those of you that don't know that part of my journey, in 2013, I was admitted into a program at Montecatini to address my eating disorder. For 30 plus days, I woke up, drove 40 miles from my house to Montecatini, spent the whole day there, and then drove back with time enough to make it to my night shift at the restaurant I was currently managing. This place was the first place where I met people who shared my struggles. This place was where my recovery journey started. When I was there, I truly thought that I was meant to tackle my eating disorder, and I believed that if I improved my eating habits and I stopped my obsession around food and I simply got to a healthy weight, my life would be normal right? (laughs) I would have never imagined that a couple of years after attending that place, I would be grasping for a new coping mechanism, insert alcohol, to help me deal with the same feelings I was throwing up over back when I found myself in treatment. It's not a coincidence that once my brain figured out that alcohol could help me numb out and not feel my feelings, then I immediately started having very similar behaviors and obsessive thought patterns around alcohol the way I used to have around food. Here are some stats I found, and I want to take the opportunity to share this with you all. First one is, up to 35% of individuals who abused or were dependent on alcohol or other drugs have also had eating disorders, a rate 11 times greater than the general population. Next stat says, in a study of women with bulimia, 
31% had a history of alcohol abuse and 13% had a history of alcohol dependence. Next one says 25% of people with anorexia, 35% of people with bulimia, and 21% of people with binge eating disorder abuse or are dependent on alcohol. And the last stat that I pulled up says nearly 50% of people who have an eating disorder are also abusing drugs and or alcohol. I'm going to have Liz um, plug in the source of these stats. I pulled them from NADA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association. And this is very interesting and not surprising. You know, in many ways, it's not surprising. And I bring these stats up for a reason. I get many questions around co-occurring disorders and more specifically questions about eating disorders. A lot of listeners know that that was the first thing that I addressed. So I do get a lot of questions about it. And I even dare to say that the level of stigmatization, stigmatization, is that a word? The level of stigma, the amount of stigma around eating disorders is a couple of degrees higher than the stigma around alcohol abuse. So my conclusion is that many people are struggling in silence, right? If many people are struggling in silence about alcohol, then there must be many others that are also struggling with an eating disorder or struggling with both things at the same time. I hope you know by now that I'm a silver linings type of person. And I truly believe that the good news here is that the only way out is through. How is this good news? Como? I found through my own experience that while I was in active recovery for my eating disorder, I still wasn't addressing the root of the cause. What was I running away from? What feelings was I continuing to struggle processing? What was I wanting to numb out on? In doing the hard work to answer these questions, the need for any type of coping mechanism diminishes. Not disappears, but at least reduces itself. If we're up to the task of not only quitting drinking, but also of confronting ourselves, of studying what's in our baggage backpack, then maybe we find a solution to deal with co-occurring coping mechanisms there. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm just a fellow friend in recovery. A messenger here to tell you that there is help out there for your drinking, for your binging, for your depression, when asked for advice on getting help regarding any of these, my answer tends to be similar. Find community and find professional help. And when it comes to professional help, be specific. Don't just go to see a nutritionist if you are binging. Go to an eating disorder specialized nutritionist. Don't just go to therapy. Go to a therapist that specializes in addiction and substance abuse. Get specific. The only way out is through. I promise there is a better way to live than to perpetually feel stuck in a cycle of whack-a-mole where you're just going on from one thing to the next. We can handle our feelings and we can do hard things. All right, eso es todo. And before we hear from Holly, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Caferi almost immediately after I found it and was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. 
One of the things that I realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community. People all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that truly understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across some bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of our monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use a promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use a promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you all there. Holly, I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Excited for this journey today. I'm so happy that we're chatting here on air together. Holly and I know each other, so I'm just really happy that you guys all get to witness our conversation today. Holly, let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink? So my last drink was January 4th, 2007. So I have about 13 and a half years of being alcohol free. Woo! Do you like <laughs> not even think about alcohol at all anymore? Oh, no, it's definitely something that's still there. I have those flickering thoughts in my mind, but I've learned a lot about playing the tape through and where my last drink took me. I never want to go again. Yeah. Can you give listeners a little background on yourself, Holly? Can you let us know where you're from? What do you do for work? What are your hobby hobbies? Who do you live with? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living? All the things. And what do you like to do for fun, too? I include that in there. Okay. Well, I uh, am actually from the great state of Montana and born and raised there. Came to actually Southern California about 15 and a half years ago uh, to go to graduate school. So I've been living in Southern California now. Um, since then, I just kind of stayed. The weather kept me, I think. Mm. I currently work for mental health systems in San Diego as an employment specialist. Um, I work with folks that have severe mental illness who are seeking employment as part of their recovery journey. And I also work at a recovery center locally as a rehab technician or a rehab specialist and support folks teaching groups and supporting them in their recovery journey on the weekends. I love that. I love that part of your service is now actually making a living out of this. What do you like to do for fun, Holly? Wow, for fun. Um, well, during COVID, I've been learning some fun games and uh, playing playing some games uh, with work. We just played a game. Oh, shoot, I'm blanking the name of it all of a sudden. Code Word. And um, it's a pretty fun game that you can play online with folks virtually. So we just had a team meeting this last week and played it, and it was pretty exciting fun. I also enjoy listening to books. I do a lot of commuting for work. And so I listen to a lot of audio books. I listen to a lot of music. And I enjoy time with my little dog, Hene. She's my little support partner. Oh, my gosh. Animals are such a blessing. And I'm really glad that you have someone with you at all times. I feel like I look over at my dog all the time and I'm like, Charlie, you know all of my secrets and you still love me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Oh, Holly, thanks. Can you give listeners some background on your history with drinking? Can you let us know when you started, when you started realizing that it was becoming a problem, and what got you on this journey? Okay. Well, I started drinking probably when I went to college experimenting. Um, I grew up in a pretty conservative household uh, as a kid growing up, went to college. And so the feeling at home was you're allowed to have a drink at home with adults and try things out. It was never forbidden or anything like that, but still pretty conservative standards of what we did. So I didn't drink at all in high school. And maybe at 18, when I went to college, started to experiment. But truly, my drinking took off. Once I was 21 and it was legal because I was such a rule follower, it took off from 21 until I got sober at 27 years old. So I feel very fortunate. My drinking escalated pretty quickly after I was engaged to be married in my young 20s. And that was all called off a few months before the wedding. So that definitely fed things up. And I came to California after I moved from Montana after the breakup with my fiance, decided to go to graduate school. And I went to figure out why I believed what I believed. So I was at Fuller Theological Seminary for graduate school, studying to be an ordained Presbyterian minister, and was drinking heavily every day, every night, hiding my drinking a lot because I realized that I drank more than the average person. And it just sped up from there and got me into a lot of precarious situations, shall we say. (laughs) So both you and I have the rule follower thing in common. I also waited. Mm -hmm. Well, I was 18 because in Mexico, that's the legal drinking age. But when you started drinking and you were like, okay, now it's legal. Now I'm technically following the rule book. Mm -hmm. The way that it made you feel and your relationship with alcohol, did you start questioning right then or more so after you moved here? I think I started questioning it more once I moved to California at about 25 years old. I felt like I fit in with my friends and my social crew in Montana. I drank just like everybody else is what it felt like. When I moved to California, I started to realize maybe I drank more than others. The bartenders would look at me funny when I would sit up to the bar and ask for a Makers on the Rocks with a beer back. And I was always ordering two drinks at a time. Um, Going out with friends in grad school, we would go out for burgers and beers. But I started to have to have a drink before I went out. I'd go hang out with friends, do the burgers and beer type thing at McCormick and Schmick's where we would talk theological conversation and then go home, let them know I had to leave home to go home early to study, but I would just go home to continue drinking alone. So it became very isolative. In the height of the drinking, I struggle with depression. I was diagnosed at 20 years old. And as my drinking got more and more, uh, the depression got worse. Obviously, I couldn't figure out why my antidepressants weren't working when I was downing as much whiskey as I was. And the end of my drinking, every time I drank, I was ending up in the hospital. And in California, it's called a 5150 when someone's held for 72 hours on a psychiatric hold. I'm going to backtrack a little bit before I get to you getting a 5150. But because of what you were going to school for and because you had moved here and like you said, you were hanging at these restaurants, having these very smart conversations at that point, mm-hmm. even though you were questioning your drinking, were you having thoughts of like, this is what smart women do? Were you like, this is like drinking whiskey? I mean, for me, when I drank whiskey, I was like, I'm not just like drinking whatever shitty drinks are out there. Like I'm serious woman right. business. I'm drinking. Right. <laughs> like I felt so important. It, it was so ridiculous. But now like at the time, it just felt like I was being so responsible by even choosing whiskey. 
Absolutely. I felt very justified in the way that I drank. Um, I was maintaining straight A's in graduate school. I was on the dean's list every semester, so I was functioning very well in school. I held two part-time jobs at the same time. So I didn't really question that I had a problem because I was functioning so highly in society and what we think is normal. So even in graduate school, I took Hebrew, right? And I aced the class. I ruined the curve in that class. And I think because Hebrew is kind of looks like chicken scratch and written backwards, it's the perfect language for an alcoholic. And so it made perfect sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, you were definitely high functioning. And you did say that you were diagnosed with depression and you were taking medication. So at this point, were you did you have a therapist or were you also talking about your alcohol use? to whoever you were talking to about your depression? Or were you just like, these are two separate issues? I had a therapist, was working very closely with a phenomenal woman and kept it hidden, didn't tell her. There were a few times looking back where she mentioned, maybe you should go to a meeting or maybe you should talk to some people. And I was sort of annoyed by that. Like, what are you even talking about? I drink just like my friends and family. I don't have a problem. I have depression. You work with me on depression, period keep the drinking and all of that out of our conversation. Yeah, we're so good at compartmentalizing. And yes. and like you said, no wonder the medicine wasn't working. No wonder the depression was getting worse. Well, same happens with people who struggle with anxiety. It ends up fueling it and not helping at all. So walk me through the progression, Holly, when it started getting to these 5150s and things started getting out of control. Walk me through what happened there at the end. Things started getting really out of control about two years after I moved to California. I couldn't stop drinking. I woke up in the morning to have a drink to recover from drinking all night. Oftentimes, I would say the sun caught me because I would drink all night and the sun would come up and I'd still be drinking. It was a crazy and vicious cycle. At the same time, I was having a great struggles with an eating disorder as well. And the only calories that I would keep in my body were alcohol. So physically, I started depleting. Mentally, I was depleting. And that's where everything narrowed. My, my understanding of the world got real small. And I always would end up in my drinking thinking, if I got rid of me, I'm the problem. So if I get rid of me, then I'm going to solve everyone else's problems. And so I had a lot of suicidal ideation. And I had several suicide attempts that would lead me to the 5150s as a result of the drinking adding to the depression and not having enough nutrients in my system because of a severe eating disorder. You were running on empty and somehow you were still managing to be in the cycle. How long did this last for? That cycle lasted about, about two years before January 3rd of 2007 took place. And that night I had called my therapist And she said, you need to get to the hospital. You don't sound right. And I want you to check yourself into the hospital. So I said, okay, I'll I'll check myself into the hospital. But I'd had so much to drink, I wasn't even comfortable to drive. And I would drink and drive frequently. I mean, my thinking was so distorted. So I decided, okay, I'll walk myself to the hospital. My last drink was, uh, as I had been drinking for days and days on end, but my last drink was a, a pint of vodka with a handful of Xanax. I was done. And as for some reason, I was following her advice to walk to the hospital to go get checked out. And during that time, I was actually mugged on my way to the hospital. Oh, my God. It and couldn't get worse. 
<laughs> Couldn't get worse, right? It sounds like a Hollywood story, but this truly happened. I don't quite remember much after that. There's three hours that I went missing. Thing that I look back on and how terrifying, my parents were up in Montana and my mom answered the phone at about 1130 at night and it was the Pasadena Police Department. And they said, are you mom? Because I had her number written on a whiteboard in my apartment. And she said, yes. And they said, we can't find Holly. And for three hours, they were searching for me. My mom started calling friends in California that were nearby to go out and look for me. I don't know what took place. All I remember, the next thing I remember is just walking back to my apartment thinking, ah, I'm fine. I'm just going to go home now. And I walked back to my apartment and the search dogs were there and the ambulance was there. And the next thing I know, I was whisked away to the hospital and put on a 72-hour hold, which then turned into a 14-day hold. And I was only released early from that because my father, uh, bless his heart, came down from Montana and took me directly to rehab. So you've, you'd had holds before. If you had yes. to give me a, I don't know if you have a straight recollection, but how many would you say this would have put you out? Like, was your mentality like, I've been here, I've had holds before. Like, were you still in denial? Like, I'm just going to get out of here and like, I'm done. I was still in extreme denial. And this was probably, I would bet that was my maybe fifth or sixth hold. And, and I was still in denial that alcohol any, had anything to do with it. I even went to rehab and I was in rehab for 97 days. And it wasn't until day 45 I admitted maybe I had a bit, bit of a drinking problem. I was in rehab and I would admit I had an eating disorder. I would admit that I had very severe depression, but I was not willing to admit that alcohol had anything to do with it. Do you, like, have you figured out why the alcohol? Because, I mean, for me, you and I share... The reason why Holly and I even met was through our struggle with our eating disorder. And I feel like the amount of shame attached to my eating disorder, I don't know. I don't know if it was because like I would binge and purge and just like imagining myself, seeing myself makes me so, if I could see myself doing the things that I used to do to myself, I just, that image is just really, was really hard to reconcile. What yeah. was it about alcohol that you just couldn't admit? Do you, have you even coined that or thought about that? I think because it was such a normal part of my life mm. and it was a normal part of family gatherings, of social gatherings, everything that I did, alcohol was involved. So why would I give up the one thing that was involved in every situation? It seemed like very odd to me. When I thought of an alcoholic, I thought of someone who was like homeless on the street with a bottle in a bag and I wasn't there. I had such extreme denial that alcohol was that much of a problem in my life. And it's hard when, like you said, it's, it's so normal when you see it all around you. It's like, well, everyone's doing it. What the heck? Like, why is it a problem yeah. just for me? It's, it's like this, why, why does that have to be an issue for me? So I, right. I hear that. Thanks for sharing. Wow, Holly, your, sto your story is so powerful because I know that where we're at now is just basically the beginning of your journey. And it's been a long journey. So tell me more about... When your dad flew in and then took you to rehab, if you were still in denial, did that feel like, like that there was an intervention and you were being taken there against your will? Where were you emotionally during those 90 plus days that you were at rehab? I can remember being very scared. Um, I had been given options when I was in the hospital. So my therapist had been given permission to talk to my parents. We had to figure something out because I couldn't keep doing this. My life was at risk. So I was given options of three different rehabs to choose from. And I chose a rehab that was close 
to graduate school so I could come back and also close to some extended friends that were like family to me. So I figured if I stayed close somehow, I wouldn't be taken back to Montana and I wouldn't um, be made to leave graduate school because I was going to finish graduate school. So I chose San Clemente. That's where I ended up in California for rehab. And it was there. I can remember it was a very 12-step based program. So that's some of my experience there. And I remember going to meetings and thinking, well, I know other people that should be here, but not me. I, I have a, this is not my problem. This is not my problem. And begrudgingly, before family weekend, I asked for support of a sponsor in one of the meetings. I said, I have to have a sponsor before my parents come this weekend. I raised my hand in the meeting and a woman walked up to me, my very first sponsor. She walked up to me at that meeting. And granted, this is like 45 days into me being sober. And I was sitting outside with a hoodie pulled over my head with a mug that said, don't make me get my flying monkeys, looking very disgruntled for having to be at the meeting. And she looked at me and said, are you willing to do whatever it takes? And I said, sure, whatever. And her name is Janice. She is a fantastic woman. And she was my temporary sponsor for about seven and a half years <laughs> and helped guide me through <laughs> guide me through for my first seven and a half years of recovery. And I am forever indebted and grateful to her, to the recovery center I was at, my mentor um, and counselor that was there, to my family. And so, yeah, that was the beginning of the journey, but it started there. Oh my God. I, our dear therapists and our dear family and friends and our dear peers in recovery that have to deal with our freaking attitude. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember both of us having an attitude when we were in rehab at one point, like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Like I have to go through the motions and some days are yep. better than the others, but they have so much grace and so much patience. Yes. And, uh. and I remember that family weekend and I will never ever forget sitting in a room with my parents and my father, who was always very poised, crying so hard he could barely breathe, saying he can't, he couldn't imagine losing his daughter. And I think that's when it became very real. And he talked about what he saw at my apartment because and when he walked into my apartment to help me grab clothes to take me to rehab, it was the little studio apartment. And apparently there was just alcohol bottles everywhere. There was diet pills and, and strewn throughout the apartment. It was a complete wreck. No one had any idea how severe my addictions had become. And the reality at that moment for my father was very intense. So when he came back for the family weekend and he and my mom were sitting together, I, seeing the pain in my father's eyes really snapped me into awareness. His little girl. I mean, I can, I yeah. can empathize and I can only imagine, especially from someone like you who I'm sure every time you guys spoke, you were like, I'm good, I'm good. And, mm -hmm. and just knowing you. So of course it was a complete shock to like see the evidence and see your place. So I, I absolutely what they were getting from me was, look, I'm on the Dean's list. Look, yeah. I got another job. And so that was a complete shock to my family. It rocked them to the core. You said you were about 45 days in where you were like, okay, maybe I'll give some second thought to this alcohol mm -hmm. thing. However, you had been drinking a lot prior. So talk to me more about, did you even realize that your body was withdrawing from the actual substance that you were so in denial from? Because you basically went cold turkey in a way. And then your body must have been like, okay, so I guess we're not doing alcohol anymore. Right. So strangely, the process for me, I don't really remember the withdrawals because I had overdosed before it, with my last drink. When I got to the hospital, they basically, I had to drink charcoal. There was a lot of things going on physically, and I was sort of out of it for three or four days. 
So I don't remember the detox process. I do know the doctor said it, they can't, they couldn't understand why I was even alive because my alcohol level, even three hours after I thought I had taken my last drink was so high and the toxicity. So for me, realizing that and realizing for me, my faith is very important. And I just know there had to have been angels around me that there was a reason I, I'm still here. There's a reason I stuck around. Somebody bigger than me was looking out for me. I 100% believe that, Holly, and I'm glad that somebody was because I got to meet you after. Walk me through what happened <laughs> after. So you were there 90 plus days left. And in my humble opinion, coming from my experience, it gets so much harder once you leave because you're just thrown back out into reality. So how was it adjusting back to the world when you got out? And what happened the couple of years later? What, what progressed after that? There's been a lot of work in the last 13 and a half years. And truly, it's a one day at a time piece. I, I feel grateful that I have been sober as long as I have, but I know it's one day at a time. Um, early in my recovery, I really dug into 12-step and AA meetings and having a sponsor. That was very helpful. I processed a lot in therapy. I was doing a lot of deep therapy work. As the years progressed, I have found a lot of things that have been supportive in my recovery from connections, connections, connections. Those have been the biggest saving grace. Being connected to other people that understand me, whether it's in an AA group, whether it's in listening to Recovery Elevator and hearing somebody telling a story that's similar to mine. Um, and then just my desire and passion, my heart changed from, I'm going to be a minister <laughs> I had a real reality check of, I was kind of going after the title Reverend Rolf. <laughs> and, and so I decided to go back to graduate school and finish my theology degree, but also do recovery ministry degree. So my entire heart, my ego shifted as well to wanting to help other people who've been through similar things. And so it's been a one day at a time. I continue to do a lot of hard work on myself and look at my own battles. I'm not perfect by any means. But I feel like the hard work I'm doing allows me to hold space for other people in the work that I do today. I want to hear more about how you even started doing the work that you're doing today. But I do want to take this opportunity having you on to talk about something that we get asked about a lot, which is you have depression. And that's another thing that we share, like this co-occurring yeah. disorder thing that is so much more normal than we talk about. However, we don't talk about it enough. And I know that when I met you, you were already sober. I think my, my conception of time change, like is such a blur <laughs> when we when we met, but I think it was six years ago. <laughs> but yeah, you were already past your five year mark of being alcohol free. Mm -hmm. However, I met you at a place where we were both getting better for our eating disorder. So a lot of people yep. who start on this journey to sobriety or alcohol free, then find themselves attaching to other things. And I want to really take an opportunity to double down on this and talk to you about you got sober, you found AA, you found community, you started realizing what helped and what worked for you. But then did your eating disorder start progressing more than it had while you were drinking? Absolutely. So it was almost like I exchanged one obsession for another. And suddenly that ticker tape in my head is how I explain it of insanity where you can't hear anything because it's like the stock floor of the stock market where there's bells and whistles going off and people yelling. That's what I feel like I associate my addictive brain is like. Mm -hmm. 
that I can't even understand the world outside because I'm obsessing. It was first about alcohol, then alcohol and food, then food, and then struggling with different traumas that I had been through and, and not able to handle one day at a time in front of me. And yeah, I linked on to my eating disorder in a very grand way and needed a lot of support in that. So it, it hasn't been like a straight line mm-hmm. to recovery and, and success and happiness and everything. No, no, no. It's, it's been a very uh, windy pathway. Yeah, Brené Brown always says that when she went to her first, I think it was an AA meeting. I'll have to fact check myself on this one. But she said that her sponsor, she also was a smoker and that her sponsor said, you need to quit drinking. You need to be mindful of your... Um, I think she struggled with or she struggles with more closer to overeating. So like you need to have your eating in check and be sober. Like you just need if you're not sober if you don't commit to all of these things. And although they may not happen all at the same time and they're not perfect, like you said, these journeys are so (laughs) they're full of ups and downs. But it is so easy for our brain to just latch on to something else that can help us survive because ultimately that's what the brain is trying to help us do, even though it's a shitty way to help us survive. But she always says like, what I've learned is that I just need to be like a turtle without a shell and that's how I need to be. And that's scary and extremely vulnerable, but I can't put on another shell. Like my brain will so easily put on a new shell and find something else to latch on to. And that's not, that's not going to get me to where I want to be. So it's like that for me was hard. Also admitting that this has to be not just one thing. Like you said, like, oh, I'm here for my depression. That's it. I'm like, you know what? I already <laughs> dealt with my eating disorder. I don't want to have to deal with three other things. But for many of us, that's a reality. Like we have to have more than one thing in check. And mm-hmm. that's what we have to choose to try and work on, work on one day at a time. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and dealing, I'm mean, really like keeping and checking and creating some, you've heard this before, some variety, moderation and balance in my life, in all things. And realizing that with alcohol, it's the one thing that I don't, I can't do. There's one thing that I can't do, but it gives me infinite possibility to do so many other things. If I just don't do, drink alcohol, then dealing with the eating disorder, having to address that each day and make progress on not obsessing and feeling there's some variety, moderation and balance in my life there. It's there's little steps and little progress for everything. What do you do when you have a situation in front of you that brings up very uncomfortable emotions? What do you do now that you don't drink? Oh, I definitely have found that if I don't reach out and talk to people, I'm in big trouble. And when I start to isolate, that's a big sign. It's a big sign to my family. It's a big sign to my close friends. My best friend since seventh grade, bless her heart, has walked me, walked with me through this entire process. And Megan knows that if we haven't talked in three or four days, something's going on and she reaches out. And she's the one person in my life that has permission to say, hey, Holly, have you been taking your medicine? <laughs> <laughs> If anybody else says that, I will be furious. But if Megan says that, it's like, okay, she cares. And I've given her permission to ask me that. And so there's little things. Like I notice what are the red flags? If I don't play Sudoku, which I like to do to kind of get my brain calmed down a little bit. If I'm not playing a Sudoku game, 
every other day. If I'm not reaching out to my best friend, if I'm not reaching out to family, if I'm not reaching out to those that I'm close with, I'm in trouble. And those red flags get me to be more aware and present with what's going on so that relapse or experimentation and anything else doesn't come up for me. I really like what you're saying. I mean, it's been 13 plus years of you really learning to know yourself in such different ways through this journey. And I feel like often, if you are type A like me, it's like, okay, well, tell me what to do, Quitlet, resources, podcasts. It's like, we just want to learn. And that's the way that I am. So I just want to absorb, absorb, absorb. But what I've come to realize is that you don't just have to learn about other people. You have to learn about yourself because no one is in your body. No one is in your brain. No one is in your thoughts. And as much as you read all these concepts and all these theories and all of these people, no one knows you the way that you know yourself. And you need to be able to identify those instances that nobody else is going to call you out on except yourself. Yes. Yes. There's little things I'm aware of today. You know, if I'm not spending some time meditating and praying, if I'm not connecting with my faith community, those things are red flags to me that isolation's taking place and that it's a very slippery slope for me when I start to isolate. I love that you've identified that for yourself. Tell me, Holly, what it's been a journey and like you said, full of ups and downs, but I think also full of opportunity and abundance because you seem to have an amazing job. I'm sure it's very emotionally taxing and stressful and in itself a trigger and hard sometimes. But how did you reroute yourself from moving here to go to graduate school to now working in the recovery industry? Talk to me about when that started falling into place for you. It started falling into place, I think, shortly after even I left rehab. My counselor there, his name was Daniel. He he became my mentor. Um, he has since since passed away, but was a fantastic man. And he was the only person when I left rehab that said, when you graduate, I want to be there. Everyone else kind of said, if you graduate, if you make it, we'd love to hear about it. And Daniel said, when you graduate, I want to be there. And I was so excited that two years later, when I was graduating with my second master's degree, I went and hand delivered that invitation for Daniel to come. (laughs) And he came to my graduation. And I feel like there was people in my path that guided me towards a desire to work with others. I've always loved working with others. Um, In my young 20s, I was a fourth grade teacher. I was always a camp counselor. I've always worked with people. And my journey just led me to work with people in a different way. So I gradually started working at rehabs as like a residential technician, helping patients and clients that were, you know, living in different recovery homes. And that gradually became a little more, a little different. I received a little more education. And it's it's almost like I feel like I was called to use my sordid past to connect with others. And like I said, hold space for people. I love that. I love that. And now more than ever, with the times that are happening and with COVID, and there's going to be so much work ahead of us because this is going to be hard to process collectively. So I'm really happy that you're basically doing that and that you find purpose in that. Oh, thank you. And it, it truly, it truly helps me stay alcohol free. I know now with the work that I do, if I were to drink, I would lose everything. I would lose my jobs. I would lose what I'm doing. I would lose my connections. And so that's a real tangible thing when that flickering thought comes to my head as it does. A couple months ago, for instance, a friend's 
it, it didn't look like he was going to make it. He had drank so much, his liver was going and he needed a new liver. And I thought he was going to pass away. And my first thought was, I'd like to have a whiskey. And I immediately had to click in my brain because I've practiced over and over. I played that tape through. I know where my last drink took me. But the insanity of my thinking, my friend is dying and I want to have a drink. And so just that reality of it's going to be there. But I have practiced and practiced and worked on following through with just play that tape through. Yeah, I have a good friend who says, just do the next right thing. There's yes. all these beautiful slogans, like one one decision at a time, live in the solution. I mean, you've been living in the solution for so long that it's just mm -hmm. easier to catch yourself because like you said, the insanity of our thoughts. And luckily I've learned that I am not my thoughts because if I were, I'd be cuckoo. Like I'm happy that I don't attach to everything that I think and that I don't take myself so seriously because you're right. You're like, this substance is killing someone that I care for. And here yes. I am wanting to drink. Like yes. we, our, our minds are just wild. <laughs> They're wild. But the, the amazing thing is, is that I'm not perfect. I'm not like, of course, that's amazing. Of course, I, but I'm perfectly imperfect. And, and I'm okay with that today. I don't have to be the straight A number one top of the class. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to screw things up. But just one day at a time, I know that I'm trying to connect with people and I know I'm just not going to drink just for today. Yeah, there's something so freeing about, like you said, like not being perfect. And it sounds so cheesy, but I put it in terms of I don't even want to put that pressure on myself anymore. I don't even have that desire anymore to mm -hmm. to be perfect perfect I think for a while I was so attached to perfection because I just felt like perfection equaled love then once I realized those two had nothing to do with each other I'm like well that what's the appeal of being perfect then it kind of yep. totally loses its appeal yep and you know the the positive affirmation of being perfectly imperfect it does sound cheesy I, I did some trauma work at a program in Arizona and I, for six weeks, did some real deep trauma work. And every day we had to say a positive self-affirmation. And I thought, this is the corniest crap I've ever heard. Oh, I can imagine and you in that Every room. day we stood in a circle and had to say, I am whatever. And every day I just said, I'm vertical. Like, what more do you want from me? I'm vertical. I'm not dead. That was all I could come up with. And you know what? Six weeks into it, one day I went, I'm vertical. Like, I've worked really hard to be alive. I am vertical and I became very proud of that self-affirmation and I began to practice those affirmations as cheesy as they sound. Our neural pathways can be rewired from the negative to the positive if we practice it. Yes, yes. And in that mm -hmm. specific situation is where I truly believe in the fake it till you make it quote. Mm -hmm. Like for stuff like that, you're yep. not maybe you're not feeling it. You're not. But the feeling will follow. You just just like we used to go through the motions with drinking and repetition led us to a ditch. It's the exact mm -hmm. same thing with, like you said, rewiring your brain. You have to go through enough motions to where that becomes your go-to. And then maybe the feeling comes later. But initially, yep. honestly, there's so many things in recovery that initially feel like we don't want to do them. It's too embarrassing. Mm -hmm. It's too stupid. It's too ridiculous. Like it's, it's true, but I think it's, that's why I like, this idea of not taking myself seriously, because I mean, yep. we, the, one of the recovery elevator retreats that I went to before I started, started hosting the podcast, we had to tell our story. And then the next time you told your story, you had to tell your story as if you were a dog, like barking, 
holy crap some people were having a blast i was like put me under this fucking chair i do not want to because you know that i'm so such an extrovert but of course in the areas that i'm comfortable like if i'm comfortable with a topic or whatever i was so uncomfortable and that's when i was like you know what i'm just gonna laugh like this is so ridiculous and stupid but i'm just gonna go with it and it ended up being this like I'm sure I was blushing and laughing and kind of yep. wanting to bark at the same time. But it's like, I mean, I'll take it. I'll take it. Anything yep. in comparison to what you said, where the last drink was taking you and just having that awareness of what your life would be if you got off this journey. It just would be completely yep. different. It wouldn't be everything that you have right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And being in gratitude, even on during COVID, even during these hard days, I'd really try to focus on gratitude. I'm grateful that I have two jobs that find me to be an essential worker. When I was drinking, I wasn't essential for nothing. (laughs) So (laughs) it's incredible to have two jobs that find me to be essential right now. (laughs) Can be in gratitude about that each day. Sounds like you've also gained a lot of confidence in yourself and how cool that your mentor, Daniel, I think you you said his name was like he sometimes we do need someone to believe in us before we believe in ourselves because he already had set that intention for you when you graduate and and I do feel like when we're struggling most sometimes we can't see our potential and it's so important to have those people near and they're always there we just have to look but it's it's important to to lean on other people that's the other thing about most of us, it's like, I don't need anybody. I got this. It's like, oh, right? not really. Not really. And me, myself, and I got me into the worst trouble. <laughs> so connection has truly been key for me. So tell me about, you're completely lapping me on this because I'm going to be two years sober in December. So as time goes hey. by, do you like, do you go to a meeting on a regular or how some people talk about how recovery centric their life has to be at the beginning, which is completely true. How does this evolve throughout time? I think for me, it's evolved throughout time in that I still am involved in the 12 step community, but it's instead of it feeling like a have to, it's I get to, I get to be involved in my recovery community. I get to be involved with my close friends and other people that I'm connecting with and sharing recovery with. I think there's a lot of different pathways to recovery, but my mind shift has been, instead of I have to, I get to. With during COVID, going to Zoom meetings was very weird. And y'all, I had to work hard, 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 three weeks of going to meetings. And I was going once a day during the week. So five days a week I'm going and I hated the Zoom meetings. And one day, all of a sudden it just clicked and I started enjoying the connection in the community. But I I just had to do it until I got to do it. Yeah. And then change is hard too. We we find our grooves and we find our routines. And then we got thrown this huge curveball. And like you said, it's like, no, I don't want to do Zoom. I want to see my friends. But we also realize, I think, through this journey, how resilient we actually are and how adaptable we are. You know, there's, I love talking through like these self- limiting things where we're like oh I'm not that type of person or I know I would never do something like that no I wouldn't go to zoom and we just we cage ourselves and it's really cool to push through all of those like limiting beliefs that we that are self-imposed basically most of the time and just I don't know recovery allows for that space to even exist for us to try new things which I think is awesome 
It is. And part of my recovery, too, I continue to work with a therapist. I continue to keep connected because there's still stuff going on in me that I got to talk out and Mm -hmm. work through. And I still am find connection with people that I've been in recovery with, like yourself um, and and other women that I've been in, in different recovery circles with. So I think that that's important as well. I don't ever want to stop working on myself and think I'm done and that I have it. Right now, I just I have today, but who knows what curveball is going to get thrown tomorrow that I may, you know, I'm going to need somebody to walk alongside me with. Yes. And I do think that times like these where everything's changing so quickly and COVID, global pandemic, like all of this, for me, that's when even though sometimes I don't feel like it, like, oh, I don't feel like I need to go to therapy right now. Everything seems fine. Or you know what? It's COVID, but it seems like it's fine now and I still have my job. But I feel like that's when that's a red flag for me. Like I can't get too comfortable and I have to still be grounded and be like, stay humble and remember that any day those weird thoughts that we were talking about could creep in. And I I need to do at least a few things that are keeping me rooted. But I do also know that you learn to like what works and what doesn't. And you learn to detach a little bit. I know a couple of people have shared on here that at the beginning of their journey, they are trying to take in so, so much information that then they get like this recovery burnout and it's real. Yeah. And then you just have to find that balance because it's not like you can remove it completely. And that's, mm-hmm. that never ends well, but you can find a balance to where it's something that you consistently need to be working on. Like you said, but yeah. you don't have to be thinking about not drinking 24 seven, the way that maybe at the beginning, some people have to be so thoughtful of every moment of every day. Absolutely. Holly, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer oh these questions. Oh my goodness, we made it. We made it. 30 <laughs> seconds or less for each question. That would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. What would you say to your younger self, Holly? Stay in the present. Mm. Don't try to be in the future too much and don't worry about the past. Stay in the present. And you are loved. What is a light bulb moment you've had during this journey? A light bulb moment that I've had during this journey is that everybody has a past and there's no reason to cast judgment or have judgment of others because we all have a past. It's about what we're doing today to do something different. We are all worthy. Mm-hmm. What do you bring to a party when they tell you to bring your own drinks? My favorite beverage, many of my friends and family know, is a Diet Coke or Coke Zero with a splash of lemonade. I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> <laughs> it's my signature drink. <laughs> What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? Favorite resources, connection, 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 whatever, however you can find that. 12 Steps has been important to me. Mental health support groups have been important to me and uh, staying in contact with friends and family, especially during this time of COVID. Just checking in on other people to get out of my head to connect with others has been great. I just recently finished uh, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. So good fantastic book. We can do hard things. And um, I'm actually reading right now, Alcohol is Shit and just eating it up. I love that book. I'm going to have to tell Paul that if he's not listening, but he (laughs) was so proud when that book came out. And so was I. I mean, writing your own book is such a huge deal. And that's amazing that you picked it up. Thanks. I'm just getting into it and I'm digging it. I love it. Yay. What (laughs) parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Be gentle with yourself and and know that there's people that want to support you. And no matter where you are, what you've done, you're loved and you have worth. 
Nobody loses their worth because they struggle with an addiction. You have so much worth and value. And please, please, please don't forget that. Before we depart, Holly, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if you finish your whiskey and the bartender goes to refill it and you scream at him, same ice, same ice, because you're afraid that the ice that has been marinating it is going to go down the drain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Oh, Holly, I had so much fun. We could talk for ages. So I'm really happy that I still get to connect with you outside of this interview. So thank you. Thanks for joining us and take care. We'll be in touch, my friend. Wonderful. Be well. You too. Bye. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. Before I say adios, I want to remind you that being here, listening to this podcast on this journey, it should make you feel lighter. Don't let your story feel like a burden, like you got dealt the worst deck of cards. Let your journey propel you towards the life you know you deserve. Let it be the best experiment of your life, the path back to yourself. Challenges will present themselves, but when we choose to, we can perceive them as lessons versus obstacles. We can fail forward into beautiful things. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, the only way out is through. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself.